If you would take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 16. And then turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, is what we'll read to begin our time. We're going to look at Acts chapter 16, which is the beginning of the church in Philippi. And we're going to move through that chapter and look at uh, three to four different individuals that God rescues and saves and uses for uh, the sake of His witness in Philippi. Uh, but to begin our time together, I'm going to read the words that Paul, 10 years later, after the church in Philippi is planted, these words that he writes to uh, this church 10 years later. And as we think through the chapter, as we think through the people, the individuals that God uses in chapter 16, uh, imagine Paul sitting down and writing these words to this church 10 years later. There is gravity and there is weight and there is love. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word at this time. Philippians chapter 1 verse 3. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine. For you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all with the affection of Christ Jesus. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Oh God, we pray that we would see the glory in those verses today as we look at the church in Philippi. God, as we see your gospel sweep into this town, into this area, and lives of normal, common, regular folks are transformed in extraordinary, uncommon, unbelievable ways. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My kids' fingernails are dirty. There is Easter grass all over my house. And my kid has yellow ink on his fingers, pants, and shirt. And we are at church anyway. I read that on the way to church today. Uh, Lydia Eves actually put that on Facebook, I guess, when she got here this morning. And as I pulled up Facebook, yeah, I was driving and I pulled up Facebook, sorry. <laughs> I saw that and I thought that fits exactly with the sermon today. Normal folks showing up for church, living life. It's not always pretty. 
It doesn't always work out the way that we want. But we're here, loving Jesus together with other normal folks who probably didn't get here in some sort of fantasy, fairy tale type way this morning. Probably got into arguments getting in the car. Probably had to critique what your kids were wearing before you headed out the door. You're going to wear that again. You've worn that five weeks in a row. Normal, ordinary folks who show up with normal, ordinary things going on. I'm often asked when folks find out about what's going on at Ashland Church and people connect with us, uh, how did you how, how did you how did you do what's going on there? How how did that happen? And and I'm often asked this one question. What is the one thing that you've learned in planting a church? And, and I know what's behind that. Folks want to know strategy. They want to know methods. They want to know, did you make mistakes that you learned from? What worked? What didn't work? And, and, and I've just gotten to the point where I, here's how I answer the question. What I've learned, the one thing that I've learned is planting a church isn't planting a thing. We get so caught up in methodology, in mobilizing, in strategy, and how are you going to get people together, and how are you going to promote, and how are you going to brand, how are you going to do all of those things that we so often forget that the church isn't a thing. It's people. It's not this abstract idea that's out there as you're planning, as you're thinking, as you're preparing, as you're strategizing. It's not just a thing you're doing. I was awakened to that about two years into what we were doing here after my family had moved out here. If you don't know the, the story, we, we were planted by Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and, and I was a pastor there for 14 years, and after being there seven to eight years, decided to move my family out here and lead what God was doing here. But I was still on staff at the church in Lexington. I was a pastor there, and much of what I had done the seven years, I was still doing over missions and evangelism and administration and preaching and teaching and, and doing all that. And, and, and it was almost like you're a pastor here and then over here you have the identity of a planter. And, and in my mind, I thought, because I'm very concrete, I can separate those things. I got list over here, list over here, and I can get it all done. And then it was about a year in, I started looking around and realizing no, this isn't a thing that you're doing. <laughs> this isn't something that you're mobilizing. And, and it hit me one night when we had a single mom in our congregation and her son was nine years old and his father committed suicide. And she began calling me and my family and folks that were in our BFG. And, and it was a devastating moment where, where folks in our BFG were, were with her as she was telling her son what had happened to her father. And, and I realized this isn't a thing. <laughs> These are people who need a pastor. These are people who are sinners. We were having to immediately, when we started what was going on out here, confronting people who were in sexual sin. 
people who were leaving their spouses, people who were involved in all kinds of, of wickedness, and you can't just look over that just to get a church going. You have to dig in and be a part of people's lives. There were parenting crises, and there were great things happening. People were having babies. People were, their families were growing. And it became very obvious this isn't a thing. These are people. This is real. And we look around this room right now, and when people say, what's going on at Ashland Church? I don't think about a thing. I think about people. I think about family. I think about problems and issues and also think about a lot of great things going on in people's lives. And when we get to Acts chapter 16, as we have moved through this book, the witness of Jesus Christ is spreading like wildfire from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it's almost like God gets to Acts chapter 16 and says, let's stop for just a minute and notice as this mission moves forward, these are real people. And he sort of zooms in on the lives of real people who are converted. It sort of slows down and says, let's look at three individuals that, that, that are in the church of Philippi that we just read this letter that Paul 10 years later writes to. Let's zero in and look into their lives and see how this church started. Acts chapter 16, if we go back to Acts chapter 15, this movement began with a disagreement. Before Paul gets to Philippi with the gospel, he's back in Antioch, and now him and his mission cohort, Barn, Barnabas, they are in an argument. There, there's a guy, John Mark, who earlier in their mission endeavors decided he didn't want to hang out with them anymore. He didn't want to keep traveling with them. And John Mark went back to Jerusalem. And Paul didn't like that decision. Paul, maybe he was lazy. Maybe he was out of shape and he was tired of walking. Maybe him and Paul had some theological disagreements. But this guy, John Mark, goes back to Jerusalem. And Paul says, now that we're going on our second missionary journey, I don't think we need him to go with us. And Barnabas says, yeah, but I like him. He's repentant, Paul. Let's take him. And Paul says, no, I'm not doing it. And we see in Acts chapter 15, there is a disagreement. And the word there, sharp disagreement, it is the picture of a sickle, something that separates and severs. And you have Paul and Barnabas who are severed and they go in two different directions. Barnabas goes back to Cyprus, his hometown, and Paul heads out to Macedonia and ends up, as we'll see, in Philippi. But I want, I want us to realize as we are on mission together, really, real people, real circumstances, there will be disagreements. If Paul, Mr. Theology, Mr. Missions, Mr. Suffering, and if Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement, the guy that discipled Paul, brought him into the church, if they disagree, we will disagree. We're going to disagree on strategy and personnel, and God is going to use it for His glory. We can trust Him for that. But I want to say that don't be shocked by disagreement. Don't be shocked by conflict. We're in this. We're three months in, and, and, and when someone disagrees with us, we're all of a sudden like, whoa, what, whoa, whoa, we're supposed to love each other. No, we're going to disagree. 
But we move forward for the sake of the gospel. And what we see in chapter 16 is the way in which God uses this disagreement for his glory. He sends Paul and now Silas off to Macedonia for the gospel. And we see this amazing church that is planted there. So Paul and Barnabas disagree. Paul says, okay, I'm going to take Silas with me, this believer from Jerusalem. And they make their way around to Derby and Lystra. And we see on the screen here, this, Paul's second missionary journey. Remember, they're over here at the church in Antioch. They've already gone in, in a smaller circle, circle through Cyprus in these towns. And now Paul in Antioch says, okay, let's go back to Derby and Lystra, Iconium, where we just ministered the gospel. And he takes Silas with him. And as they begin to travel to these places, they begin to hear about a guy named Timothy. Timothy, this, this guy who his mom was Jewish but his dad was a Greek and his grandmother taught him the scriptures from birth, taught him the Old Testament. And they began to hear his name. This guy, Timothy, who they probably met when they were in Lystra before, who believed the gospel. And now this guy, Timothy, is a leader in the church. He's sharing the gospel. He's bringing people to church. He, he's this great evangelist. He can teach and he can preach. And, and even in the towns all the way around Lystra, up to Iconium, he is being heard of as a leader in the church. And so when Paul gets to Derby and Lystra, they say, where's Barn? Where's Barnabas? Oh, y'all had a disagreement. Do you need somebody to go with you and replace him? Because we know a guy and his name is Timothy. And notice verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Yes, this is great. We've heard of his reputation. But notice what he does. He took him and circumcised him. Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Paul is headed into territory where there are Jews, there are synagogues. He's delivering the message. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And he says, I want Timothy to go. And that led to a very awkward conversation. <laughs> Timothy, taking a mission trip. I want you to go with me. All right, Paul, do I need shots, vaccinations, paperwork? No, you need a very extensive surgery. Now, there weren't any other men signing up for that trip. But Timothy says, I'll go. Okay. Verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Remember chapter 15, the decision, the Gentiles can be saved. They don't have to be circumcised to become Christians and be a part of the church. And notice what happens. The churches are being strengthened and they are increased in their number daily. The church continues to grow in faith and strength and following Christ. And they also grow in in number. But notice the message they're delivering. You don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But why did Timothy agree to be circumcised? For the sake of the gospel. Paul wanted him to have credibility with the Jews he was speaking to. You see, Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was a Gentile. 
And so when he was born, his father said, he's not going to be circumcised like a Jew. And to all of the Jews that he is ministering to here, speaking to, they would have seen that as scandalous. He would have been doubly unclean. We don't want to hear from you. And yet Timothy says, if it means being circumcised to speak the gospel, okay. And he sacrifices his rights to not be circumcised as a picture of the gospel. This is what Paul would say later to the Corinthians, that he becomes all things to all people. To the Jews, he becomes a Jew. To the Gentiles, he becomes a Gentile in order that he might save some. Paul says it's the gospel at stake. And if it's not sinful, I'm willing to sacrifice my rights so that others may listen to me and hear the gospel. I may have credibility with them. We read earlier from the book of Philippians when Paul writes to the church of Philippi, you know who he mentions right beside Jesus Christ. Jesus who had all authority, all power and did not cling to his rights, but he let go of them for the sake of others. You know who he mentions right beside him? Timothy, the guy willing to be circumcised for the sake of the gospel. And he says, I have no one else like him who will genuinely have concern for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not of those of Jesus Christ. He said, among all peoples, I have Timothy who is willing to sacrifice his rights in this way for the sake of the gospel. And I want to make you a promise today. We live in a culture that is so narcissistic. We look around and we are eaten with this disease of narcissism. Everything begins with me, myself, and I. I view the world by what I want, what I have, who I am. And we live in a world where everybody does this and everybody's affected by it. And I want to promise you one thing. If in this world you leverage what you could have, what you could want, who you could be, not for yourself, but for others, you will be an amazing gospel witness. And you will stand out in a world that is so me-centered. If you don't have to be the one who gets all the credit, you don't have to be the one who's heard all the time. You don't have to be the one who's always right. You're not pouty. You're not sulky. It's not me, 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 me. You will stick out. You, you will be the one who people look on and say, that's what it looks like to be like Jesus. That's different. And you will leverage that for the sake of the gospel the same way Timothy does here. Notice Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they begin to travel uh, from, uh, they, they begin to travel uh, even further west from Lystra. They, they try, to, try to get over this way. And what begins to happen in Acts chapter 16, it's almost like the Spirit of God sets up roadblock after roadblock after roadblock until finally they get this vision. It's called the Macedonian call. Most people call it that of a man who is, who is saying, hey, we need help in Macedonia. And so they decide to go down through Macedonia, seeing this as a vision from the Lord, and they head down finally to Philippi. Philippi was a very influential colony. It was called Little Rome. But in Philippi, 
There wasn't a synagogue. As we've talked about Paul's missionary journeys as he moves through these cities, he always goes to the synagogue. But he gets to Philippi and there's no synagogue. You had to have 10 Jewish males to have a synagogue and there weren't enough men in the city. There weren't enough men in the area to have a synagogue. And so what the women did on Saturday, on the Sabbath, is they went down by the river and prayed. And so Paul gets to Philippi and he says, where are the God-fearers? There's no synagogue. Where are the God-fearers? And he goes down by the river and he begins to preach the gospel. There's a group of women. They're having their Jewish Jen Wilkin Bible study down there. And he says, I'm going to preach the gospel to these women. And as he preaches the gospel, notice verse 14. One who heard was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And notice this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, you, you, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here, down by the river in Philippi, they meet this lady and she would have been Asian and she believed in God and she sold purple clothing, which means it was very expensive. And many, many people believe that Lydia had sort of a, a chain of boutiques where she sold very expensive clothing. And she hears Paul preaching the gospel and notice the text says, the Lord opened up our heart. It's like a flower to the sun. What is being said begins to make sense. I need this. She trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what she does. As the Lord opens up her heart, she opens up her home. Whatever I have, I want to use it for this mission. And the church in Philippi begins to meet in Lydia's home. Paul baptizes her servants. He baptizes her family. And this church forms in this home of Lydia, this first century businesswoman. And the Bible is amazing in this way. The Bible was written to cultures that did not, did not emphasize the usefulness of women. And yet when you read the Bible, women are often the heroes of the story. And here in Philippi, we don't have a synagogue. We, we don't have leaders here. Who's going to, where's the church going to start? And it starts in the home of Lydia. She is the hero opening up her home so the church can meet and begin to worship and begin to witness here from her house, from her life. And again, if you want to be effective at ministering the gospel, if you say, God, how can I be used? Sacrifice your rights like Timothy and open up your life, whatever you have, your house, your home, open it up to be used of God. 
You believe the gospel. God has opened up your heart. Open up your home. Open up your life. Lay it on the table. Stop thinking about missions as an event. Stop thinking about missions as a trip. Stop thinking about missions as just this thing the church does. And turn around and look at your life. Look at where you go. The ball field. Look at what you do at school and work. Open up your home and open up your life in the way Lydia does here. And so we have Timothy sacrificing his rights. We have Lydia opening up her home. And we have this church beginning to form here. The team, Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, they continue to move through these towns. And as they move through these towns, there is a slave girl. She's possessed by a demon. Many of them, many believe that Apollos was guarded by a python. And this spirit of this snake that guarded the god Apollos had, had possessed this woman and was enabling her to tell people their future. And so men had bought her and were using her for personal gain. She would tell people their future and they would pay her owners. And she sees Paul and his team preaching the gospel in her city and she begins to follow them around. And she begins to be very annoying to Paul, the text says. Notice verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And we would say, how is that annoying? And most of the time we have to, be real, we have to realize Satan, demons, they use truth not just to be annoying, but to sabotage the church. She is proclaiming truth about the mission team, but in areas where people probably hated Paul. And people probably would have shunned him when they figured out who he was. And she's traveling behind them. Y'all know who these are. Y'all know who these people are. They're preaching the gospel, the way of salvation, and on and on behind Paul and his team. And she kept doing so for many days. So Paul's been very patient. Many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed. Isn't it encouraging that Paul got annoyed? <laughs> he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. He basically says, shut up in Jesus' name. And a demon leaves her. But now what are her masters going to do? Their cash cow is gone. Their way of making money is gone. Many believe this lady was a member of the church of Philippi also. So she turned from that lifestyle. She was freed. And now they have no way of making money. And so what do they do? They incite the city. Paul is, they are beaten and they are eventually arrested and they are thrown into prison. And just a reminder... Spiritual victories often lead to physical persecution. We see that all through the Bible. There are times in my life where I'm like, things are going wonderful. Things are going great. And then all of a sudden, you look around, you're going, why is that going on? All of a sudden, there's conflict. All of a sudden, there's stress. All of a sudden, there's worry. All of a sudden, there's flat tires. All of a sudden, there's doctors. And you go, oh yeah, Satan hates what's going on here at our church. Satan hates me. 
And I live in a world full of sin and death. And so just because things are going great doesn't mean other things are going to go great. And you have to endure, even here, physical persecution, conflict and stress to proclaim the gospel. But notice what Paul does in light of that. They are thrown into prison. And what are they doing amidst this spiritual warfare, amidst this backlash of Satan? They are praying, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Oh, way of escape. Satan, you thought you had us. You locked us up. And they sing and they worship and they pray. The doors are open. Their bonds are loosened. And then the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors were open. And he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. That's what he thinks. Earthquake. Chains. Broken. Ain't nobody staying in a Roman prison. But notice the way Paul wages warfare. He cries out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Again, we see this theme of sacrificing your rights. You're free to go. But he stays for the sake of the prisoners, for the sake of the jailer's soul. He stays. And the jailer called and turned the lights on and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, most of the time, people aren't walking up to you at work. What must I do to be saved? That's not the way most evangelism works. Pray for an opportunity to share the gospel today and I promise you somebody will walk up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? That's not the way it works. However, when you sacrifice your rights and you are other-centered, those opportunities come all the time. People look at you and go, you're not like everybody else. You don't just serve yourself. It's not just about you. And this man, in this very dramatic moment, where he could have been killed for losing prisoners, where he wants to kill himself because he knows what's coming, God uses it to, to show him the, the, this amazing display of mercy in Paul and the missionaries. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who, and all who were in his house. And notice verse 33. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. He and all his family. So they proclaimed the gospel. He gets saved. And what does he do? This man who just a few moments ago is willing to kill himself because he knows what's going to happen if he loses the, soul, the, the prisoners. He takes the prisoners home. Just like Lydia opens up his home for the sake of the gospel. Gives them medical attention for their beatings. And he serves them. He brought them into his house and he set, verse 34, food before them. They have a meal together. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This jailer, this first century 
Roman, probably retired military. That's who usually did this job. Hard and grizzled from service. And now he's working third shift at the jail. Probably didn't want to go into work that night. Now there's an earthquake. The prisoners are gone. What else do I have to live for? And God miraculously saves him. This blue-collared guy who's about to give up on life. And now his whole family comes to faith in Christ miraculously. Like a lot of folks here today. Like a lot of men here today. Just working your job, leading your family, trying to do the best you can. And what does he do when he believes the gospel? Again, it's all yours. My home, my family, it's all yours. Use me however you want for this mission. And he brings these missionaries in his home. And as the chapter begins to end, we realize that the town and the leaders in the city did not appreciate what he was doing with the missionaries. And they come looking for Paul and the missionaries. These are men that we have beaten. We've arrested them. Now you've freed them. We need to, we need to arrest them or we need to get them out of our city. And the leaders, by the time they find Paul and the missionaries, they just want them out of the city. They come before Paul and they say, we've heard about you. Angels deliver your kind from prison. Earthquakes now deliver your kind from prison. We've heard about your kind. We don't want you in our city. You're making us look like fools. And Paul turns and says, when we came into your city, we, we were rebel rousers. We were just these Jewish guys who were stirring up the city and you beat us and you arrested us. But guess what? We're Roman citizens. You're in a lot of trouble. You beat a Roman citizen. You imprisoned a Roman citizen. Paul could have had these leaders executed for what they did here. But what does he do? He leverages his rights and what he deserves for the sake of the gospel. He says, I tell you what. Let the city know who we are and what you've done, and we'll just leave. We're not going to make a stir about it. We're just going to leave. We're not going to leave as illegals. We're just going to leave. And what is Paul thinking about? He's thinking about the church in Philippi. If we leave as these criminals, and the folks here think this church was started by criminals, what would that mean for the church? And Paul says, we will just leave. And notice, uh, as, we, as we get down to the end of the chapter, verse 39, the leaders come to Paul and they apologize to them. Okay, hush, hush. We don't, we don't need to hear any more about what we've done wrong. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. But notice what Paul does. So they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged and departed. Notice Paul's focus over and over is the church, is the church. And by this time in the home of Lydia, you have all kinds of folks gathering. You have a slave girl who used to be possessed gathering in Lydia's home. And now you have the jailer and his family in Lydia's home. And they're gathered for a church service. And Paul comes in and he encourages the church there. And, and so as we get back to the book of Philippians that we read earlier, do you remember how the book began? It, it begins with that verse that we read beginning in verse 3 that we normally put on our coffee mugs. That, that verse, when you're writing a, a fellow believer a thank you note, 
and you need to make it sound spiritual, and you don't know, i got to find a verse, and you use Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. How many of you have quoted that or bought the Lifeway card? <laughs> Always in every prayer of mine for you. All making prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. As Paul is in a Roman prison and there are shackles on his hand and he writes those words, it wasn't Hallmark Christianity. In his mind, I remember, I, I remember Lydia, first century fashionista down by the river. She believed the gospel and opened up her home. I remember the occult princess slave girl. The demon came out and she believed the gospel. I remember the jailer and he believed the gospel. I remember baptizing his family. There is something behind those words. And it is the move of the gospel in this place through common, ordinary people. And it's the same thing we do this morning. As we look around this room, we are thankful. We look around this room and we are full of joy. Why? Because we see something that's abstract. No, we look around this room into the eyes of people and we understand what's going on in their lives. Some of you look across this room and you remember sharing the gospel with someone over here on campus at EKU over a cup of coffee. And you met every Tuesday and you just pled with them to believe the gospel, believe the gospel. They believed the gospel and they were baptized. You can look around this room and make all of those connections. There's gravity behind it. And it doesn't happen through superhero Christians with Holy Ghost lightsabers. No, it happens with ordinary folks, preachers from Tennessee, raised in Redneckville. It happens through moms who are leveraging motherhood to pour the gospel into their children's lives. It happens through teachers who are loving on those kids day after day after day after day for the sake of the gospel. It happens through retired widows who give every week to ends of the earth so some of you can go on mission trips. It happens through accountants who invite their co-workers over to their house so their kids can play and you can invite them to vacation Bible school. That's the way the gospel moves. It happens through, you know, Joe down at the factory who runs the forklift. I went to high school with his wife and they're looking for a church. That's the way it happens. That's the way it happens. Acts 16 looks a lot like our mission field, but it also looks a lot like our mission force. Look around the room and you see missionaries all around this room. Folks like Lydia, folks like the slave girl, folks like the jailer. And what are you doing? When you come to faith in Christ, God opens up your heart and you open up your life. Uniquely, no one can do what we're supposed to do in Richmond. Nobody. No one can do what you're supposed to do in your life. 
God has put you in a neighborhood. God has given you friends. God has given you a job. God has given you a career. God has given you resources, money, homes. God has given you all of that, and it's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's a witness for the sake of the gospel. And we see that in Acts chapter 16. Very common, ordinary folks, not things. And the moment we begin to think church planning or mission is as a thing, we miss what God is doing. Because God didn't save our soul with a thing. A Galilean redneck Nazarene. Flesh and blood. And his name was Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus liked watching sunsets, I'm sure. I'm sure Jesus, when he sat around and had meals, and it got to a time where nobody knew what to talk about, he just said, what do y'all think about the weather? It's supposed to rain? He probably knew it, but anyway. <laughs> but the point is, Jesus was a person, not a thing. He wasn't a Messiah robot. He, he probably had dirt under his fingernails that he had to clean out every now and then. He sweat from hard labor. He wasn't a thing. He was flesh and blood. And he is who God used to rescue your soul. A real person who laughed with tax collectors, cried with prostitutes, and was angry and annoyed with religious hypocrites. He was a person. He wasn't a thing. And the cross wasn't a thing. The cross was his flesh and blood, a person nailed to it, enduring the wrath of God for your sins. The resurrection wasn't a thing. It's flesh and blood back from the dead. And so what we are doing here isn't a thing. It's the witness of Christ following a person whose name is Jesus. Let's pray.